May this be the story that guides us, the story that inspires us, and the story that tells ages yet to come that we answered the call of history. We met the moment. Democracy and hope, truth and justice did not die on our watch but thrive. Welcome to How We Won. Woo! All over the country, people stepped up, took action, and did extraordinary things. The best antidote to anxiety is action. We've been on the front lines with you and helped to build the largest organizing coalition in a generation. Wow. As the resistance steps into power, we must stay engaged and we must keep moving forward together. Joining us to help us celebrate the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is the co-founder of Indivisible, Ezra Levin. We talk about how important it is that we all stay engaged and involved and make sure that we take advantage of this opportunity to make real lasting change for our democracy. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Won. What a day. We're recording this just hours after the inauguration, and I have a massive smile on my face. (laughs) This is the perfect show to end our our season one. What a crazy journey it has been to get to this point and end with the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. What are your thoughts right now after watching all of the inauguration? It feels so amazing um, and such, but, you know, that it was a little bit muted because it was such a long time coming. Like We waited so long for this and I was reflecting on what I've been doing, you know, every January for the last four years, Uh, January 20th, 2017, I organized a bowling trip for a bunch of political people so that Mm. we wouldn't have to (laughs) pay attention. We just like bold, drank beer, and had Korean barbecue all afternoon. So we ignored the inauguration. And then I think I just pouted for a little while. And then by the next year, I I was working. How are are you feeling today? I'm feeling just an immense amount of gratitude. It's just, uh, it's overwhelming. Um, I've had something stuck in my eye all day long. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just uh, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for all of the volunteers who have worked to make this day happen over the last four years, three years, two years, the last year, whenever you jumped in to do it, to play a role in our democracy, to do this important work of a citizen. And I was also thinking how grateful I am to the people early on when I first jumped in who asked me to do stuff, who invited me to their meeting, uh, who invited me to come and, and be part of a organizing council, or uh, who invited me to come to the first California Democratic Convention I ever went to. Those people reached out to me and invited me to be part of this thing. And I don't know about you. I have a hard time saying no. So that's that's on me. But it really changed my life so much for the better. And and uh, I'm just looking at this whole journey 
the arc of the story that we've been telling on this podcast. Whew. Who knew this last year was going to – I mean, we knew it was going to be bad, um, but we didn't see 2020 coming. Nobody did. And I'm just in awe of the work everyone did to get through this, to lead us to this moment. Uh, yeah, it's it really, really stinks that we can't be together in person because I think that if that were possible, you and I would be in D.C. right now and incapable of recording a podcast. We'd be having too much fun. Um, but it's been incredible. It would just sound like it's slowed down <laughs> half, half, to half speed. <laughs> it would. Um, it's been incredible to see. Um, people posting on social media their memories over the last four years. Um, thank yous to all the, you know, all their their partners in in coalition building. I loved seeing that people got dressed up early this morning to watch the inauguration and have champagne and wear pearls and Chuck Taylors like Kamala Harris. Um, mm -hmm. So I loved seeing all that, and it was just such a reminder that um, so many of the people that I know and love in the world right now are because of this work and what happened. Yeah, hear, hear. So to everyone listening to this show, thank you, thank you, thank you. Our world got a lot better today and hope for a better future is so much stronger today than it was yesterday. The democracy has prevailed. We had a transfer of power uh, despite all the efforts of the previous administration to, uh, to keep that from happening. We're here because of you. Everyone who made a phone call, who wrote a letter, organized in their communities, who called a friend. We know how close these elections were, and every single action that you took really made a difference. So I hope you feel that. I hope you feel that in your heart, that you were part of this history. And I'm excited for the next chapter. We have a lot more work to do. We're not going anywhere. We have this opportunity right now with the trifecta in government to make some real meaningful change for our country, for people. And uh, I'm excited for where it goes. But right now, celebrate, take a breath, give yourself a pat on the back, hug whoever you're in the household that you can safely hug with. <laughs> you did this. Absolutely. I want to shout people out, but there's so many people that I'm going to mess up, so I'm not going to. But I will shout out one of the um, most amazing performances that we saw today from Amanda Gorman, who is the National Youth Poet Laureate, Yes, who read um, this in inaugural poem, uh, The Hill We Climb. This one phrase really stood out to me. She captured so much of, of where at least I feel that I've been. Um, but she said, and yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Um, and I'm getting goosebumps all over again. And uh, gosh, what an incredible talent and an important reminder that our work isn't done yet. Yeah, she was the clear uh, show stealer mm -hmm. of the inauguration. She was so incredible. And Gaga was um, good. And J-Lo yeah. was good. Yeah. And the speeches were good. And, of course, we led our show with a snippet of Joe Biden's speech because he is our new president. But I I really wanted to put Miss Gorman on there as, as a cold open because she uh, it just resonated so much. And you know what? I'm going to make her my reason for hope this week. <laughs> yeah. 
She's you usually say reason. that I don't have one, but I'm jumping the gun now and giving you one early. <laughs> <laughs> she brought me a lot of hope and a lot of perspective as she did all of us. And I just have a tremendous amount of hope for our future because we have a government that um, is on the right side of history now. And um, I liked Biden's speech. It was very much one uh, about unity, which I think is the right thing to say. I'm, I, you know, I'm not feeling it all in my heart, and uh, and I need to get there. I hope that he keeps being the messenger for that, and our electeds in Congress keep working really hard to use the tools at their disposal to to pass meaningful and aggressive legislation when we have this window. Mm-hmm. Because I know that the Republicans in Congress are going to do everything that they can to obstruct and slow down the passage of, of the legislation that we need. And we get uh, to a lot of that with Ezra Levin. And um, of course, Indivisible has their new playbook that they just put out about what we do post-Trump and what our priorities need to be, how we help encourage our electeds and support them with public sentiment and public action and, and what the legislative priorities are. I don't know. I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm hopeful for all of it. I don't, I don't want them to acquiesce to being gentlemanly in how they approach their legislation right now because uh, I feel like that's a trap. I think feel like Mitch McConnell is is going to try to slow roll and obstruct everything. I mean, it's what he does. So, But I'm glad that Biden is showing the world and, and showing our country that we need to come to a place where we can talk to each other and listen to each other because we certainly do. It's well said, and it's a reminder that, you know, listen, one person can't do everything, but one person can lay the groundwork for devastation or peace. And we've seen that the last four years, for sure, in the absolute wrong direction. So, yep. So is that your reason for hope is everything? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> everything, everything is my reason for hope. <laughs> I don't think I'm required to get super specific on inauguration day when like we just and, and we have the trifecta in the Senate. I, I think I can be pretty broad with my reason for hope this I, week. I, I totally agree. <laughs> so for this week's to-do list, I think it's pate. Oh, you took the word right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to celebrate? How am I going to celebrate? I'm going to celebrate by setting some more hopeful, more peaceful intentions for the coming year and and being more strategic about my work. You know, I got to say, I, I I did too much these last four years. I did. Hmm. T- I, I really I did. I did. And uh, I look forward to focusing a little bit and having a life again. That's super important. <laughs> I, I I invite others to join me. Some of us, some of us spent most weekends over the last four years working, and uh, I I invite you to join me in, in enjoying, enjoy you know enjoying life as much as you work to make it more enjoyable for others. How are you? Good advice. How are you celebrating? We're gonna have a nice fancy dinner. Postmated to our home tonight, <laughs> the three of us, and we're going to watch the celebration tonight. And then, you know, I'm I'm uh, sort of looking forward to a little 
time off, but uh, but I love doing the podcast with you, Mariah, and and getting to talk to all of our listeners every week. So I'm really going to miss that for the next month while we're on hiatus. But I'm super excited to launch a season two that's all about action and owning our power and keeping people engaged and with more incredible guests who are going to educate us. I've learned so much doing this podcast. I mean, it's just, it's transformed the way that I think about things. And um, and that's what a privilege to be able to do that. So I'm excited for a little time off for the next month and uh, am really excited to come back in March for season two of How We Win. Woo! All right, well, let's let you get to uh, beautiful young Jackson, whose future is a lot brighter because of what transpired today. Yes. Thank you, everybody, for that. That is from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. And let's hear from uh, the incredible co-founder of Indivisible, Ezra Levin. Ezra Levin is the co-founder and co-executive director of Indivisible. Along with his co-founder and spouse, Leah Greenberg, Ezra has been featured as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People of 2019, included on GQ's 50 Most Powerful People in Trump's Washington, and ranked number two on Politico's 50 list of top thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics. He certainly has done that. He is the co-author of We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. Ezra, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us right in the middle of all of these amazing inauguration events. Hey, it's a celebratory time mixed with a lot of uh, horrific uh, other <laughs> details, but happy, happy to be here after you talking. Yeah, I've never felt so angsty while celebrating. It's it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird combo. Yeah. It's been it's been bizarre uh, these past uh, past couple of weeks and really past four years. So lots to talk about. Yeah. Well, here we go. It's the end of the Trump administration. You and Leah have been a huge part of making this day happen, a day that means so much for all of us and for the future of your new baby boy. How are you feeling today? You know, uh, I, I am f- feeling this this mix of elation at what we, and by we, I mean the collective we, not just indivisible, but the broader grassroots movement of movements over these past four years that have worked together to kick Trump out of office and build a Democrat trifecta. It's incredible. It's incredible the potential that's in front of us. And also there's the horror that we've seen these past, um, of course, these past four weeks, but just uh, these past four years too, mm-hmm. seeing blood smeared in the Capitol by fascists who were storming the Capitol, um, seeing a Republican party that voted the majority of its members in the House to overturn the election and then seeing 95 percent of the Republican caucus in the House vote to uh, absolve Trump of any blame is really troubling. And what it tells me is Trump is gone, uh, but Trumpism is not. And uh, that's scary. It makes uh, the opportunity we have right now in front of us with this Democratic trifecta all the more important. Right. Well, we had a great conversation with uh, your wife, Leah, back in October, and she talked about how Indivisible got its start. As you take in this moment with all the conflicting emotions that you have uh, and what we've all accomplished, like you said, the big we, um, can you look back on what your goals and expectations were when you wrote the first Indivisible Guide? 
<laughs> I, I, we hope that our uh, that our parents might read it, and maybe <laughs> maybe that share it with some friends. Um, you know, we wrote a Google document. That's what it was, and yeah. you know, I uh, we were eating tortilla soup at our kitchen table some weekday after work. And I tweeted out the guide to my dozens of followers. And, you know, I think wild success for us at that point would have been that, you know, somebody a few weeks or a few months down the line uh, would respond to that tweet and say, hey, I, I read your guide and I went to a congressional town hall and I told them what I thought. And thanks for writing that. that that's what we thought success might look like. Um, I think, you know, back back immediately after the election, there were a lot of uh, guides circling around the internet about how to protect against rising fascism, how to lock down your iPhone, how to help coordinate in your community to protect those under threat. What we thought was our value add in that moment as former congressional staffers was a guide to demystify how Congress worked, to tell people that, hey, there's this thing called constituent power. You can use it to pressure your members. And that is your best tool for resisting the worst that's to come from Trump. Um, so we, we viewed ourselves as just contributing to that library of uh, defense manuals against the rising Republican majority and Trump administration. And uh, we really did not expect it to uh, be read and spread around, let alone to, to kick off an entire nationwide movement of locally led groups. Um, and really, these last four years have just been a real privilege to be part of that and to be able to uh, help these folks who are newly engaged in political activism to make their voices heard. It's, it's been absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, you talk about those newly engaged folks, and that's really the only positive thing that has come from the Trump uh, presidency is the hundreds of thousands of first-time volunteers that have been inspired into action with groups like Indivisible and Swing Left and Sister District, etc. People are getting engaged also with their local Democratic Party in record numbers too. But now you know, we're in a post-Trump world. So as we move from the resistance into stepping into our power, how are we going to keep all of these new volunteers engaged and active? I, I think that's a great question. I think that's the question right now. And there are um, real cautionary tales from history of how this has played out before, because the traditional trend of grassroots movements is you get a spike of energy early on, and then it trickles off over time. I, that is natural. People's activism wanes over time. You have a new job or kids or you move. Life is hectic and, and people move on. So it is it is not natural that people stay uh, all the way up at 11 uh, in terms of engagement forever. And that's what they've been for the last four years. So, you know, we we view um, the most recent Democratic trifecta as a real uh, place to learn from. Um, and actually, our new Indivisible Guide is based on drawing specific lessons from the Obama trifecta. And, and if, if you remember in 2007, 2008, Obama, who's just a, an incredible leader and an inspiring organizer, was able to build up a a massive movement that pulled not just him into office, but a big Democratic majority behind him in the Senate and the House. And that movement in the form of Obama for America and then Organizing for America had this promise of being a grassroots movement that could support his legislative agenda. Right. And instead of that coming to pass, the the grassroots movement in the form of OFA was largely subsumed within the Democratic Party and the energy underneath it kind of petered out. And instead of having this progressive 
grassroots support for the Obama legislative agenda, we saw the rise of the Tea Party. That was the grassroots force on the ground when I was a a Capitol Hill staffer in 2008, 2009, 2010. That was the force we saw, these these wackadoodles in um, uh, a revolutionary garb threatening to launch their own revolution and do everything they can to resist. That's a kind Uh, term for them, wackadoodle. I I guess comparatively speaking right now, it's probably accurate. (laughs) Exactly. They were wackadoodles. They weren't literally smearing blood and feces in the U.S. Capitol. That's their um, descendants, unfortunately. But um, so, you know, we view that as something not to replicate. That's dangerous. Um, And what what we know from history is that if you want to get big things done, it's not enough to just take power through elections, you've got to have grassroots pressure on the ground, pushing elected leaders in order to get stuff done. So, you know, Indivisible made a bet more than two years ago after we took the House, and it was that come 2021, we would have a Democratic trifecta, and we would need to use that trifecta to pass significant reforms to our democracy to prevent any kind of Trump 2.0. So, you know, that's why Lee and I wrote the book. That's why at our first big national convening, we trained folks on the filibuster in DC statehood and the For the People Act, which includes democracy reforms and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And it's been a big focus of ours to make sure that the movement, which started out in response to Trump, focused instead on the forces that allowed Trump to rise. Uh, And so, That is what Indivisible is doing right now. We are dedicated to ensuring that these Democrats who we helped get uh, elected, along with awesome other grassroots groups like Swing Left, like Swing District, like Run for Something Others, we're dedicated to ensuring that these newly elected leaders actually use that power uh, and pass reforms in the brief window of opportunity they have to do it. Yeah, it's so important. And um, and the new outline, the new guide rather is is great. It outlines next steps. And you uh, you did pull from your time as a staffer during the trifecta in 2009 and the lessons learned there. We're already seeing uh, Mitch McConnell talking about how nice it would be if we could just keep the filibuster right where it is and, and work together. Um so you've learned lessons. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how McConnell is so ready to do away with rules as soon as they come up against him. But when they're of use to him, he can't say nice enough things about him. You know, he gutted the filibuster twice when Trump was president to to expedite his own nominees and to install two Supreme Court justices. The, the idea that the Democrats should just give him a veto over the entirety of their legislative agenda is absurd. It's absurd. And it was entirely predictable. We wrote this guide months before we knew we had taken the Senate. And we said, hey, prepare. The Republicans are going to pull out these BS arguments, act as if they're acting in good faith, but in reality, attempt to slow down, delay, sabotage the entirety of the agenda. And we know that's coming. So let's just be ready for it and not give into it. And the good news, because there's a trifecta, is Democrats don't have to give into it. They actually do have the power to move forward. So we know that. And and you've learned those lessons from 2009. And Mitch McConnell makes it blatantly obvious what his goals have been and are. Um, most of our Democratic leadership was in power during that time as well. Do you think they have learned their lessons and will be more aggressive this time? So I think the, the, the one of the lessons I learned over the last four years is that your elected officials aren't like a light switch. It's not suddenly like you turn them on, they have this um, come to Jesus moment, and suddenly they're always on your side. It, you've got to keep on applying pressure on every fight, on every, um, on a, every piece of legislation, at every decision point. They need to know that you're watching and that you have expectations for them. So 100%, I think we are in a, in a better place now 
than we were in 2009, just in terms of how much we trust Mitch McConnell, how much we understand that the Republicans uh, are dedicated to undermining the the Democratic president's agenda, how much they're dedicated to maintaining their own power. I think there is a lot of knowledge there. That said, there is a battle playing out, a, a battle of ideas playing out right now in D.C. On one side, you have folks like Indivisible, folks like former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, folks like even Barack Obama, uh, who say, hey, the legislative filibuster is a relic of Jim Crow. The legislative filibuster makes the country ungovernable. Clearly, we need to get rid of this. Clearly, we need to pass democracy reforms. That That's one argument. And then there are some other uh, high-profile folks um, who have come out and said, hey, we, we need to give Mitch McConnell a reason to bargain with us. We need to cut deals. That's going to be more impactful. And which side wins out is uh, anybody's guess right now. I would say at this very moment, as I talk to you, we do not yet have the votes to eliminate the filibuster. We do not yet have votes to make D.C. a state. I don't even know if we yet have votes to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act. Now, I think the votes are there. I think we can get them, but it's going to take a fight. It's going to take constituent pressure these coming weeks and months to make sure the Democrats use their power. So do I think that all the Democrats have learned their lesson and we're going to see a flurry of activity just on its own immediately? No. But do I think that they're receptive to the lesson? Do I think that we have the best arguments to make and that if we effectively make them, we'll win? Absolutely. You write in the new guide, quote, the victory isn't the election, it's the legislation. To win on legislation, we have to stay engaged well after an electoral victory like the one we had in November 2020. We just talked about keeping everyone engaged and how uh, difficult that is and how important that is. And you mentioned some legislative priorities like eliminating the filibuster so we can actually get the legislation passed, uh, the Voting Rights Act and D.C. statehood. Um, what do you think our legislative priorities, those and others, should be right now? And, and, and how can we put the pressure on the right people to make sure those happen. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, when we when we survey indivisible groups about what they care about, as you can imagine, it's it's a diverse group. I, I think you'd probably find the same if you if you surveyed the the swing left members, activists, and groups on the ground. They care about everything, right? They yeah. care about the environment and immigration and taxes and healthcare. When we ask our folks, "What is your very top priority?" at the top of the list is democracy. Yeah, and. I don't think that's democracy instead of these other priorities. I think it is democracy in service of these other priorities. The fundamental problem that indivisible groups and others have identified is we have a representative democracy where representation isn't really happening. The elected representatives of our government are not incentivized to respond to the electorate. They are protected by the system. When you have the vast majority of the Republican caucus choosing to overturn the results of the election, choosing to vote down popular proposals like gun violence prevention or health care expansion or progressive taxation, the reason why you have that is because they know that in order to keep their job, they've got to keep on acting like they're acting. They don't have to curry favor with their constituents because the deck is stacked against their constituents. So the the three top priorities for us are D.C. statehood, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and H.R. 1, the For the People Act, uh, which includes election security, voting rights expansion, uh, automatic voter registration, and other uh, great provisions. Now, these are not brand new pieces of legislation. They were passed in the previous Congress right. uh, by by the House, although obviously Senate Majority Leader then 
um, Mitch McConnell refused to take them up. You know what he called them? I like them the way you a- said then, the Senate majority <laughs> then, the previous Senate majority leader. Exactly. The former and never again to be Senate majority leader Mitch McConnell at right. the time. Uh, he called those provisions socialism and a power grab. He called them a power grab. And it, that that phrase, power grab, really stuck with me. And it stuck with me because these provisions that we're pushing now are not new in any sense. Uh, going back to 1977, when Carter took not just the White House, but a Democrat trifecta, one of his first major legislative proposals was a big democracy package. It was a democracy package to eliminate the Electoral College, to pass campaign finance reforms, to pass election security reforms, to expand voting rights. It was something that looked very similar to these democracy programs. And you know what happened? The Republicans called it a quote-unquote power grab. Hmm. They unified against it, and none of it ever got past the filibuster. So we are in danger of replaying that history right now, but I think the difference between now and then is what we've been talking about on this show so far, which is in 1977, there wasn't a grassroots movement fighting for these reforms. What we are dedicated to, not just in Indivisible, but you see this in many other groups right now, we're dedicated to ensuring we eliminate the filibuster and get this done. That's not just coming from the top, from the elected officials. That's coming from the bottom. And I think that's the magic that can make this work. Mm. Yeah. You know, um, this might be a rare time when I agree with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, because uh, when we make uh, voting accessible to everyone and make our government actually representational, then, uh, yeah, I I do think that the Republicans will lose power as a result of that when everyone has a voice in our democracy. (laughs) It's a smart analysis. They're spot on. Mitch McConnell, many things you can say about Mitch McConnell. He's no dummy. He understands that when more people vote, the Republicans lose. Yeah. We're fighting against now an emboldened group of white nationalists, right-wing extremist groups, and radicalized Republicans both inside and outside our government. As you mentioned at the very beginning, Trump may be gone, but Trumpism is not going away quietly. How do we hold on to public sentiment, hold these people accountable, and also still stay focused and aggressive in passing this legislation? Yeah, and I was probably overly optimistic to say that Trump was gone. It seems quite likely that Trump is launching his 2024 bid as soon as, I don't know, today, uh, tomorrow. Maybe he, by the time it airs, he will have already done it. Um, but I, you're exactly right there that um, Trumpism is not going away. The forces that allowed him to rise, if anything, are just getting uglier. And the divisions within the country are just uh, becoming more and more visible um, to everybody over time. I think uh, you you cannot pretend that the last four years didn't happen. And I think most most um, historians who are commenting on this right now and many, many activists who are commenting on it right now make the point that there cannot be healing without accountability. There cannot be healing without accountability. Right. But accountability is also not enough. If if we manage to impeach Trump, convict him, uh, we've already managed to impeach him twice. If we manage to convict him and then bar him from future office, we won't have suddenly saved democracy. We won't have suddenly defeated fascism in this country. So yes, by all means, accountability is a necessary part, but we also have to reform the system so it's actually a functioning democratic system, and we've got to use the power that we've won right now so far to improve people's lives. That Those are the goals. So let's make democracy actually representative in America, and let's use this democratic trifecta to improve people's lives. That That is what I think can actually heal the country. And the, the good news is while that might seem pie in the sky, while usually you think of the federal government as being 
unable to get its shit together, we are in a rare moment where they can. Yeah. There is a Democratic trifecta for the first time in 10 years, and they can actually govern. So I, I think that most people's perceptions of how incompetent Congress is, how incapable they are of actually rising to the challenge, it's based in reality, because usually that's the case. But every once in a while, an opportunity comes up and suddenly legislation speeds up and you get a whole bunch done. I think we're in one of those moments right now. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, with what gets lost in all the messaging about how we talk and unify and all that, to make people's lives better. Like, let's let's do the job that government is set up to do and take care of people. And I think that's the most powerful argument that we can make for our progressive policies. 100% agree, because you know what you know what Americans don't want to hear is, well, we tried, but they stopped us. Please, please vote for us again. Right. That's not acceptable. That's that's a losing pitch. Use the power you've got to improve people's lives right now. And look, I, I see good news coming out of the Biden administration on this. I see good news coming out of uh, incoming Senate Majority Leader uh, uh, Chuck Schumer on this right now. I, I think there is actually uh, acknowledgement that they need to move fast and they need to move big and they need to move in visible ways so that folks see that change is indeed coming. Yeah. Well, you kind of jumped on my next question, which is perfect. Um, perfect segue. Uh, you end the introduction to the new guide with these words. If there's one takeaway from this new guide, we hope it's this. We have the power. We have the opportunity. It's up to us. And the time is now. Ezra, what gives you the most hope for our future? I, I imagine it's the same hope that you get when you when you hear from the swing left groups and activists from around the country that the reason why politics ever changes is because new people get engaged, they stay engaged. And that's what we saw from Swing Left. That's what we saw from Indivisible. That's what we saw from Sister District. That's what we saw from Run for Something. The reason I have hope that the politics of the future is going to be different than the politics of the past is because of these activists I've I've met with and talked with and um, built coalitions with and strategized with for now four years. And these are folks largely who, before Donald Trump's election, were not active at all before in politics. I remember talking to an indivisible group leader in East Tennessee, and she said, what was I doing before 2016? Minding my own goddamn business. <laughs> and that, that, that was the mentality of many. And, and folks after the 2016 election were really, they felt let down by the system. They thought somebody was going to fix this for them. And the helpful conclusion they came to themselves was nobody else is going to do this. We've got to do this. And so, you know, there are indivisible groups that have been out there uh, all over the country in red districts and blue districts and purple districts and rural areas and suburban areas, urban areas that have been meeting week in, week out for four freaking years. Yeah. And when I call them up after the 2020 elections and talk to them to congratulate them about everything they've accomplished, their response is, great, what's next? Right. That's what gives me hope. That is what gives me hope. And I'm sure you see the same thing from folks in Swing Left and Sister District and Run for Something. It's not like, oh, we did it. We can go home now. It's, oh, democracy is a participatory sport and I'm playing the sport. I'm in it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're seeing the same thing too. This is our uh, last episode of season one. We're taking a little break from the podcast and then launching again on early March. And people are already like, what are we doing? What are we, what's, what's, what yeah. are we going to do? Thing? And, and I'm, I'm going to take a little nap. Just uh, for a few days, <laughs> but um, but it's great to be able to celebrate this moment as as rife as it is with anxiety. Still, we have done a lot. We've done a lot together, and uh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on here to celebrate this moment with us. So, Ezra, thank you so much for being with us. 
Steve, anytime. Thank you for helping to build this movement of movements together with us. I think it's incredible what we've all accomplished. I am just incredibly proud uh, every single day that I've been able to be part of this history. And I'm really looking forward to uh, working together to create that generation defining change. I think it's possible. I think we're going to do it. You know, I just want to let people who are listening know, and Steve, do not edit this out. Because I, as I'm sure people have figured out, Steve is editor, producer, booker, writer, co-host of this, editing. Of, editing this, of, this, of this show. He was the creator of it. He is the engine that drives it. It only exists because of Steve's persistence, commitment to volunteers, and belief that ordinary people can change the world. So... Thank you, Steve, and I hope that people remember that in, as, we, as we take a little pause and get ready for season two. You're very, very nice to say that, and I love our chats every week and everything that you bring to the show, too. Your perspective on things, the questions you ask are always surprising to me with our guests and, and takes it in such a great direction. So, yay us. <laughs> yay. for being with us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we won. We won because we all got involved. That's right. We're going to miss you for the next month. We've got some amazing interviews that you may have missed, so please take time to catch up on, on the past episodes. And stay in touch with us. Let us know what you want to hear for season two. Tweet to us at Steve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. We will be back in March with season two with even more inspiring stories, in-depth discussions about policy and tactics and your weekly doses of hope and action. Take some time to celebrate our new administration made possible by all of the work we did together and we'll come back ready to jump back into action. We'll see you then.